Hello and welcome to Truth in Journalism, a radio broadcast dedicated to applying the Word of God to current events. Well, today on Truth in Journalism, we're going to continue our series on Virtual Reality Church. Okay, so last week we began a series and we asked as our fundamental question whether virtual church is actually church. Now, for our purposes, I'm going to treat virtual reality and online streaming as the same thing. I know they aren't the same thing, that there are some significant differences between the two, which we'll address later. But I want us to think of them the same way because the question about virtual church rests on whether or not it's legitimate at all and not about the various degrees of illegitimacy or legitimacy, for that matter. I think, frankly, it's an all or nothing. Either virtual church is totally acceptable as a normative form of worship or it isn't. So today I want us to consider the anthropological case. Does virtual church match the anthropological needs and desires of people? Can virtual church work for humans? All right, so our task is to investigate whether virtual church works for human beings. The first thing we have to ask is, what is a human being? The second question is, what do human beings need out of church? And the third question is, can virtual church meet the needs of human beings? Okay, so today we're going to focus on question one. What is a human being? Now, I know that this might seem like a bit of a ridiculous question, but I assure you that it is not. If you start to delve into the philosophical and theological arguments about this, you'll see that the answers and the way of getting to the answers are pretty divergent. But essentially, there are two ways that people try to define what humans are. There is the transcendent assertion method and the attributional method. At least, these are the terms that I like to use. So, when we define humans, we can either use the attributional method or the transcendent assertion method. And let me give a bit of an explanation on these because this will be helpful. At least, I think it will be. The attributional method is a way of defining humans, or anything, by listing its attributes and listing enough attributes so that that definition cannot refer to anything else. And this was used quite famously by Plato, who said that a human was a featherless biped. Now that sounds pretty good until a guy like Diogenes shows up with a plucked chicken, sticks it in your face, and shouts, I found a man! So as we can see, with that example at least, the attributional method runs into problems because it has to cover every attribute, otherwise non-human things can get into the human category. However, when you use the attributional method, you have to take outliers into consideration. My son has lost the power of rational thought because of a brain injury. If you define humankind as rational, then my son becomes non-human. And obviously, there are many examples like this we could come up with. So the attributional method has to say enough, but not too much. And then, of course, there's the tricky third problem with the attributional method, and that is that it's reductionistic. It reduces people to the sum of their parts, but most people would agree that there is some kind of gestalt in human nature. In, in other words, humans are more than the sum of their parts. And fourthly, the attributional method is inelegant. The other method, as you probably guessed, the method I prefer, is the transcendental assertion method, or the transcendent assertion method. And that means that a method where we assert that human beings transcend attempts to define them because human nature is modeled after something transcendent. In other words, in Christianity, we say that man is made in the image of God. So the definition of human is a being made in the image of God. Now, some want to fuss and feud and fight about this because, sure, it's elegant, but it's too simplistic. No, it isn't. Define simply what it means to be in the image of God, and you'll be the greatest theologian who ever lived. 
So it's not too simple of a definition. Others, however, complain that the definition is just moving the mess because now we have to define something else. It's like, oh, well, now now you've just transferred it to having to define what the image of God is. Okay, if that's your complaint, then you'll have to reject every definition ever conceived because every definition is made with words and the meaning of words is not self-evident. Every definition needs further explanation and explication. But I can tell you right now that people don't like my way of doing things. Theologians and pastors like long lists of attributes. But I'm not bothered by that because I know that I'm right and also they probably smell. Let me give you an example. Not of the smell, but of them being wrong. If someone asks you who you are, what are you supposed to do? Give your name? Tell them your job? In the end, there is really no more satisfying answer, at least in the philosophical and theological realms, than to say, I am me. Every other answer can be picked apart. So we're starting here with the notion that human beings are made in the image of God. That is the pole star of our entire anthropological project. Every answer we give to questions about human nature have to make sense of the fact that we are made in the image of God. Now, let me remind you that we're trying to answer three questions. Eventually, we're going to get to all three. But question one is, what is a human being? Question two is, what do human beings need out of church? Question three is, can virtual church meet the needs of human beings? And we are now in the middle of question one. What is a human being? Now, we know that a human being is someone made in the image of God. Okay, great. What does that mean? Well, it means many things. Indeed, it means more things than we could say in a 15-minute broadcast. That's for sure. But there are a few things that I think are germane to our conversation that I want to list. First, human beings are made in the image of God means that we are made to worship. Now, this may not seem self-evident, but it is indeed an inescapable notion. Think about it this way. Why did God make man in his image? Surely there were lots of reasons. But within that list of reasons is the fact that God wanted to manifest his personality throughout the universe through his creations. Now, I, I know that sounds very theological, so let me put it in C.S. Lewis's words. God really wants to fill the universe with miniature versions of himself. God does this because God is glorious and he wants to fill creation with his glory. And this indubitably redounds to him receiving glory. God receives worship because he has made himself manifest in creation. Let me give an example that I think will clarify. When I look at great architecture or great art, when I see Shakespeare performed or listen to Dvorak's symphonies, when I see glory in created things, I inevitably rejoice in the work of the creator, and that incontrovertibly gives glory to the creator. If you listen to Beethoven's Ninth or gaze upon Bernini's sculpture, you will be moved, unless you're some kind of Philistine, uncultured swine, but you will marvel at the beauty of human creation, and that act of delighting in beauty gives glory to the creator. In the same way, God manifesting his presence in creation necessarily brings him glory. You can't even draw breath without glorifying God. Your very existence is a testimony to the glory of God. Living is an act of worship. Now, just because there are involuntary acts of worship doesn't mean there aren't voluntary acts. There are, and we are commanded in the Bible to do them. And it is self-evident that since our existence is an act of worship, that being a human means that we live to worship God. Second, we are made to be in relationships. Again, this may not seem self-evident, but it is. Why? Because God is triune. We worship God in three persons, which means that God has eternally existed in the community of the Trinity. 
God has always existed in relationship to himself because he is triune. This means that since man is made in the Imago Dei, that we, being like God, are to exist in relationships not only with the Trinity, but with each other. Notice that man and woman are made in the Imago Dei. And man and woman aren't the same. Men and women both reflect God, but we reflect different aspects of his infinite personality. Men reflect the divine masculine and women the divine feminine. Only together can men and women understand themselves because we can only understand ourselves in relation to God. And when we see other aspects of God reflected in others, we are aware of ourselves. Or to put it in an even fancier way, and probably more confusing way, self-awareness is only possible in relation to others. The self-other distinction is necessary to understand the self, not just the distinction between the self and the other. Now, I could talk about this all day because this is a thought that is too wonderful for me, but we must move on. Being made in the image of God also means that we have a mission in the world. God clarifies this by telling the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, to rule the earth and subdue it. We are supposed to rule over creation and to put things into order. I've often said that the mission was to make the world Eden. But there's another thought and one that is extremely important for our conversation, and that is that while we are to rule over and subdue creation, we are also supposed to live in the creation already created. Our interactions with the world are supposed to be with the world that is. Okay, now I'm, I'm sure that this might be a little confusing, so let's take a deeper look at this thought. God commands Adam and Eve to rule and subdue. But what are they to rule and subdue? The earth. The earth that God made. Adam and Eve are to interact with reality, with the universe that actually is. And herein lies a danger that I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about. We were made to live in God's reality. Yes, no question we were made to augment and rearrange and rule over his reality God commands us to. Building and creating and making art and music and literature and beauty and goodness and bringing order are all things that God wants us to do. And indeed, in many places, he commands us to do these things. But all of these things are done within actual reality. And this is a great danger of the internet and the virtual world in which we live. Virtual reality is really an alternate reality. It's a curated reality. It's reality in the sense that we can interact with others in it. We can glorify God in it. We can create in it. But ultimately, the virtual world of the internet is not the real world that God created. It's a contrived world. It's a commodified world. It's a curated world. It's a created world, but it's not the world God created. Just as Frankenstein's monster is a freakish and more wretched version of mankind, the man-made reality of virtual reality is a twisted form of reality. I don't say it isn't reality. That's a lie. That's the foolish lie that we tell ourselves when we try to distinguish between the internet and real life. And I'm putting real life in scare quotes. The internet world, virtual reality, it is real life because real people are actually living there. Again, there is in quotes. The problem is not that it isn't real. The problem is that it is a corrupted and grotesque reality. It's a reality that has many uses, many real, legitimate, and good uses. But it is also a reality that is other than the reality that God created. It is an imaginary world that we can share. Like children playing make-believe, the internet allows us all to play the same game of make-believe. And make-believe is not bad in itself. I love coming up with stories for my children. I've written novels and lots of short stories. The difference between make-believe of novels and stories 
is that those stories are intended to be temporary escapes from the real world so that we can understand the real world better and be better people in it. At least, that's the purpose of good literature and storytelling. But make-believe becomes a problem when it is no longer a supplement to the world God created and it becomes the primary reality. And people have done this with stories. The Trekkies, the Dungeons and Dragons players, are, are stereotypes of people who insist on living a contrived reality. In the Magicians trilogy, uh, Quentin Coldwater is a man-child who lives in his fantasy world so much he doesn't want to live in God's reality. Friends, let me be clear. Virtual reality is reality. It is the man-made reality. And the more we choose to live in man-made reality and not God's reality, the more disconnected we will be from our created purpose and from each other. People nowadays are doing everything in the man-made reality of the internet. And I mean everything. People are shopping or communicating or having parties or having sexual relationships through the mediated, contrived, curated, commodified, man-made reality of the internet. And this is bad. Again, the internet is not bad. Virtual reality isn't bad. Replacing God's reality with virtual reality is bad. It is theologically bad for us for a whole host of reasons, but not least of which is this. It distracts us from the superior reality that God has made. God's reality is actually better and better for us than the internet. The immediate reality of physical objects and other people is actually better for us than the mediated man-made world. If God didn't want us to be able to see, hear, feel, touch, taste, and smell each other, he would have made us that way. But God didn't want that. God wanted a world full of textures and tastes and smells and fluids. He wanted a world where people have an inconceivable amount of facial expressions and tones of voices. He wanted a world where the physical matters. And it's a better world. Harder? Yes, of course, it's a harder world. But it's a better world. Virtual reality is reality. But it's an inferior, suboptimal, bastardized reality that can never live up to the real thing. And it will make us soul sick if we stay too long. And sadly, most of us have already stayed too long. Like the sister who tasted the fruit of the goblin men, only painful, physical, costly love of another is going to pull people out of this corrupted reality. Because we cannot stay longer. And we've already stayed too long. We need to say no to the man-made reality and return to God's creation. And so next week, we're going to talk about what that means and why that's important because we're going to attempt to answer the second question, what do human beings need out of church? So I hope you'll join us then next week for another exciting episode of Truth and Journalism. Thank you, and may God bless your day to his glory.